What an awesome day yesterday was. I can't help but not comment on it before I walk into the message with you all. Uh, We prayed simply over the six or so weeks that we planned and promoted yesterday's cookout. It was real simple. We just wanted to get to know people in this neighborhood, right? We wanted our people to come together and relax and hang out and have fun, yes. But I think the simple prayer was, as people who felt like God placed us in this neighborhood, that we wanted to just get to know people in the neighborhood that God placed us. And uh, really, uh, our heart was just to shake hands and to, to smile and to say that we're here uh, to bless this place, not take from it, but to give to it, and uh, really start by building relationships in this community. And to see uh, the amount of people really that the Lord gave us the privilege of getting to know yesterday was really a remarkable grace and privilege from God. And so I think what, as a church, we can really celebrate is the continuation uh, of what we know is true, that God has placed us in North Syracuse for His purposes and for the good of the people that live here. Uh, And I think that, you know, sometimes we may uh, scratch our head and try to figure out what's God doing, what's going on. And we may not necessarily expect this or that, but to be able to interact with, I would say, at least 60 to 75 people that we had never met before at Heritage Park in the beautiful weather yesterday was truly a privilege. And our prayer continues to be that, that God would give us repeated opportunities to engage people uh, with the love of God in this neighborhood. Can we continue to pray for that? and make ourselves available to that. To this day, uh, when it's Monday or Tuesday or whatever, I'm sitting in here, I'm still scratching my head, thinking, how did we get here? God must be up to something, right? It's still true. That's why we're here, because God is up to something in this neighborhood. So let's hold tight to that. Let's continue to make ourselves available, and let's continue to turn our hearts of compassion and care to the people of this neighborhood. Can we do that together? I think so. I think so. I could see even how we interacted with people yesterday and the, and the, and the, and the looks in your eyes even now that you're seeing that the Lord is indeed up to something. I think we can all say a resounding amen to that. You know, somebody misunderstood something uh, in conversation with me this week, and he will remain nameless. We were inviting some people over uh, to have dinner. And uh, the comment was made back and forth, as you know how texts go, uh, well, I think we're going to pass this time because our children don't really do so well in quiet places. And I thought, does he not know me at all in my home? Does he know the Maisies at all? Like, quiet places? My house? Clearly there was a misunderstanding about what quiet is or uh, what kind of people we are. We're nuts. We're loud. You know, I've never been to Barnum and Bailey Circus, and the truth is, I don't really have to go. That's our lives, Barnum Bailey's Circus. 
And you know when the acrobats come out? You ready for this? Bedtime. How many of you parents are aware that you either have been there and you're looking back and you remember bedtime or you're in the middle of it right now and you're saying, man, what's the deal with that whatever hour it is that you attempt to put your kids down, which is a funny saying? I don't know what goes on in our home, but it's crazy. Everyone is fine. And then you say, okay, it's time to go to bed. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we have diseases. We have hunger pains. That right out of, after a huge ice cream sundae, all of a sudden, we need a steak cooked for us right now. Somebody's bleeding. Somebody is hurt. It's crazy. And so we, being the try to one-up them as much as we can for as long as we can just bring more intensity to the table and it's just like this spiral circus event and finally we just have to look at all three of them and say do not come downstairs period we don't even care if you're sleeping anymore just up and go to bed Am I the only person that has done this? Did anybody do this last night? Yes, I did. Do not come downstairs for any reason. Very simple command. And yet, our brilliant children, or conniving, or manipulative, however you want to call them, gorgeous, beautiful, awesome, start to ask questions. Okay, I, I, I know you've said do not come downstairs, but, but, but what if I'm bleeding? Or, or dad, what if, what if a robber comes in the window and tries to steal me? Can I come down then? These are, these are not fabrications. Or... My favorite. <laughs> and you can guess which kid it is, okay? What if I throw up? What if I throw up? See, they're, they're trying to find a loophole, right? There's, there's this very definitive, authoritative command that is laid down. It's universal. It's absolute. Do not come downstairs for any reason. And they're trying to find a loophole. Or maybe if we're looking at them a little bit more positively, we might say, Mike, they're just trying to apply truth to their lives, to very real and po potential circumstances. Right? They're trying to integrate these concepts and they're trying to create all these possibilities to understand what if this happens? What about that particular situation? Do we have to obey then? Or really, what does obedience look like if these types of circumstances play out? I think on a less humorous note, we can kind of understand that. 
especially as we take a look at the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning in Exodus chapter 21. I encourage you to open your Bibles there. It's going to be a long passage. We're in that part of Exodus. Okay? We're in the long passage part of Exodus. Okay? So we're going to take a look at really the, the application, the integration of these ten words, these ten commandments that were universal commands. Don't do this. Don't do that. You shall not do this. And you shall do that. You, remember, if you look back a few chapters. But then there's life. There's situations. There are questions rolling around in people's minds as they think about how do I obey this command in the nine to five, in the, minu- in the minutia of everyday life? Have you ever wondered about some of God's commands? How would we apply it in this particular situation? For sure, some of us are looking for loopholes. But I think for those of us who truly desire to live a life obedient to the Lord, we just want to understand What kind of day-to-day impact does the law and the will of God speak into our jobs, our families, our homes, and our marriages? How do we live this out? And so we're turning into a section of Scripture, a, a, a longer introduction, a longer Scripture, but at the same time, Uh, I hope not necessarily a seven-hour message trying to look at um, some basic principles here, some truths that we'll glean. We'll not look at everything. We're not going to dig under every rock. Okay, But we're going to break this down and see really how God is intending to apply the truth of the Ten Commandments, the universal nature of that truth to the lives of everyday people. So let's take a look together. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And when a man sells his daughter as a slave, he shall not go out as, a, as the male slaves, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. She does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, that he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. 
If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, or the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod or the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores out a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, and kills it or sells it. He shall repay five oxen for an ox, 
and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall, shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in its own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that he, the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. The thief is not found. The owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or a beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them, both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath. He shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what, he, for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. This is God's Word. And all God's people said, Amen. My favorite class in college at Asuni Oswego, you'll never believe it, the economics of baseball. I mean, you get to talk about the MLB, right? One of my least favorite classes. Guess what it was? business law. You know why? Our response typically to just the simplicity and the, almost the, the lifeless, so it would seem on the surface, nature of legal code. Anybody start sleeping during that? It's okay to admit it. It's actually interesting because most preachers, most uh, people when they come to this passage will often skip a section like this. Right? They'll, they'll move on. Right? Somebody recently asked me, we're going through the whole book of Exodus? Yes, we are. We believe it's very relevant for us. Now, as you read some of these uh, specific commands, you'll see that there are many of them that aren't simply relevant to our cultural context. Right? 
Raise your hand if you have an ox. Raise your hand if you dug a pit and did not cover it. There's some things in here that are very specific to, to this ancient uh, context where uh, we see these kind of things being played out in their society, right? We see things, though, however, that do very easily apply, right? We do also see that this is really the unpackaging of the ten. Somebody said to me the other day, you notice there's a lot of the Ten Commandments in this passage being played out. You may have noticed some of them, like you shall not murder, right? There's specifics now about what that looks like. You see specific things in there about stealing, you shall not steal, or, or bearing false witness about breaching trust. What we're really seeing here is the application of these universal principles in very specific situations. And I believe as we take a, a little bit more of a look of it over the next few minutes here, we'll see that this has such relevancy for us as the people of God, as the church today. He says in verse 1, these are the rules that you shall set before them. Right? We thought there was only 10 of them. Right? Somebody was like, hey, 10, I could deal with 10. But now you make this other list as well, and it begins to become a little bit overwhelming for us. Like, wow, what is going on there? I think the thing that we notice here is that the Lord is very concerned about the every detail, every circumstance, every relationship, every conversation, every aspect of our lives the Lord is concerned about. Right? You, you could look at this and say, this is minutiae, this is mundane, this is kind of boring. But that's the profound nature of God being revealed to us. That's what the revelation of God does. It's not just simply this moment where we sit at the base of a mountain and we hear the thunder and the lightning and the resounding trumpet speak forth. But we see that the revelation of God is intended for the Monday morning. For every situation of our lives. He's concerned about it. Not every spiritual experience is a Sinai moment, is it? Sinai being this wow. Right? But really what we see that the nature of God, the truth of God is being applied to everyday circumstances, everyday living, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, in the way that we relate to one another. Right? If you look at the last five commandments of the ten, they're about how we treat one another as the redeemed people of the Lord. And we must never forget, as we begin to walk through some of these uh, details, that these rules are set in the context of a salvation, of redemption. That is, Yahweh, the Lord, already graciously and powerfully set His people free from their oppressor. They were free from Egypt. And so these rules that are being set before them, these definitions, this, these terms of the relationship are set in the context of salvation. It's already happened. 
That is, these people are not going to be saved if they do a really good job at keeping their commandment, these commandments. No. Israel already was redeemed. And so now they're being called to live a life that represents in the day-to-day living their redemption. That shows that they truly are people who know God, who have heard His voice, who have experienced His salvation, and are obeying Him with every aspect of our lives, their lives. Verses 2 through 11 really address uh, something that immediately begins to conjure up a number of negative emotions. The first phrase, when you buy a Hebrew slave, slavery? Right? This verse is often used, uh, or these kinds of uh, passages and verses are often used to, to bring an argument for slavery. Or, on the flip side, they can be used as an argument against believing in the Bible at all. Right? You may have heard somebody say in conversations, I don't believe the Bible. I don't subscribe to Christianity because it teaches slavery. And it is oppressive to women and children. Have you ever heard any objection like that? Right? And so we read this about slavery, and we need to clarify on a number of levels, especially because that word slave and slavery bring up so many nationalistic connotations and baggage about what happened in the 19th century and prior. When we're talking about slavery, buying a Hebrew slave, when it talks about when a man sells his daughter as a slave, when we're talking about the relationship between a master and a slave in this context, we're talking about something absolutely and fundamentally different than what was experienced in the mid-19th century. Please hear that. You see, Hebrew slavery was first of all voluntary. It's very important. Voluntary rather than what we've experienced in history as involuntary. Right? The, the kidnapping, the taking of, and then the selling of, and it's over, it's bound, you're a slave, and, and the loss of dignity and, and all that stuff treated lower than, all that kind of stuff. That, that's, that's not what we see taking place here. This is voluntary rather than involuntary. And also, this is temporary. Don't miss that. It says it, right? Verse 2, the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. Right? And you see in other uh, verses here, going all the way down to verse 11, that there's provision for freedom. It's temporary. And it's voluntary. It's not the kind of slavery that we talk about uh, in, in our culture. What we've seen in our society. 
It's really a way for debt repayment. Somebody incurs a debt that they can't pay back, and so they can voluntarily say, I will work for you, I will serve you. It's like indentured servitude. I will serve you and in such a way that my debt will be paid off. I was talking with Alex Morris this week about this very thing, and Alex had great insight as he said, you know, it's kind of like military service, how we see it today. No one would ever call uh, military service slavery, right, Ryan? Correct? <laughs> right? It's, you get the GI Bill, whatever, you get... Uh, money for college or something like that. So it's like a, an arrangement. It's an it's arrangement where people are provided for and there is obligation to work. And there's a term. That's what we see taking place here. And it was set up as a way to provide people freedom from these things. And we see the way it treats women, right? And, and, and children. On the surface, just a quick reading, when we say, selling his daughter is a slave. Oh my goodness. But in many ways, that was done. The father, what would happen there is the father would do so, especially selling him into a rich family in hopes that that daughter would please the son of the master and then be married into that family for the sake of her provision and her protection and to be treated like a daughter, as the text says. It's for her good. We see in here the, the, the honoring of the, of the family here. And even willful just commitment to say, I, I love my master. Even seeing that, right? That there's this relationship between master and slave. That the master takes cares for the welfare, the food, the provision, the clothing, the shelter. Is taking care of. Is taking care of that slave. So that in the end, that slave might say, look at I love this guy. I love my wife. I love my family. I love my job. I'm all in. It's a very different experience. And you see here that the Lord is setting forth for His people truth. His truth. When it comes to these kind of master and slave relationships. Someone said today this could be seen it's a direct or indirect, maybe at worst, parallel between how employers treat their employees. Right? That, that the employer and employee enter into a relationship where you work for me and I pay you. And really it's the responsibility of, this, of the worker to, to submit. I think that speaks to all of us here. To submit, to work diligently. And to give ourselves to the, to the mission and, and the vision of the boss. As I saw in Blue Bloods last night. Oh yes, I did. The commish looked at his number two and said, your job is to make me look good. Right? Submission to the boss. But at the same time, the employer here is, I think by application, called to say, I'm going to look out for the total welfare of my employees. There are men in this room that you look at their websites, you see how they deal with their business, and you know that they've seen this in Scripture, that they're called to care for the welfare of their employees. 
They're to treat them with dignity and honor and respect and to give them loyalty as their employees give them loyalty. The Lord is setting forth His eternal truth. And in this specific situation here, it applies to uh, the relationship between masters and slaves. A relationship very unlike that which is an abomination to the Lord. What we saw in American history. Do you hear that clearly? We condemn it. And any church that uh, preached or taught that and advocated for that was not a biblical church. Period. End of story. And really should be apologizing to the world for such awful interpretation of Scripture. The next section we see is in areas related to homicide, right? Remember, if you look back in the Ten Commandments, there was a very clear command. You shall not murder. And then another one, which we see in this section. You shall what? Honor your father and your mother. Some real drastic, extreme statements that uphold the dignity and the place of the mother and the father. And uphold... The, the beauty and the, and, the, and the value and the significance of human life. Justice is really on display in these five verses, 12 through 17, right? Honoring your father and mother, you shall not murder. We see here that there's even a, a cause for uh, capital punishment. And of course, you see grace here. There's, there's motives being brought into it, right? If somebody premeditated by cunning, the Scriptures say, and they planned it, and, and, and they went after it, then that's on a different level of, you know, two guys getting in kind of a fist fight and shoot, as Jeremy uh, clarified for me this week, manslaughter cases. Right? But we see here that the Lord places incredible significance on the value of human life. It's about the fact that men and women have been made in the image of God. Right? We're the, praise God for this in my house. Killing a person is not like killing a spider. Praise God. There's something significant and unique about the value of human life. You shall not kill. You talk about something that's constantly hitting Facebook these days, uh, given all the, the videos with Planned Parenthood and all that, you talk about why is this, this battle continuing to, to be waged? Why is the heat kind of turned up in the sanctity of human life conversation? Seems like tensions are very high in that regard. I would hope that this is not about politics, Christians. I would hope that any speaking out on issues related to, to abortion, children, that it's about your convictions that you hear and know in the Scriptures that God has made all of us in His image. And that murder on any scale. It's just completely contradictory to the ways and the will 
of our God that we worship. So we see even whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Well, I'm in deep trouble. My kids are hosed. Right? I don't mean to bring humor to the table, but I think we recognize that often we've really missed this. How God sees the father and the mother in the context of the family. And how we have often fallen so short in our attitude, in our speech, in our, in our ways, and how we've treated them. Anyway, we see that the Lord is setting forth His truth as it pertains to the value of human life, as it pertains to the place and position of parents in the context of a family. Moving on for the sake of time, we begin to see this even in 12 through 17, and now I think we see it constantly throughout the rest of these verses, that there is a... Payment that is required for sin. That restoration needs to be made when there is loss. Right? We see it in the the famous uh, life for life thing that is in verse 23. But if there's harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. We're seeing issues related to injury. When dudes get in a fight, somebody slugs someone and the other guy slugs them back. What are we going to do about that? You can see the wisdom of God. He knows it as, as, he, as the people hear this truth. They're kind of in big trouble. This is what's going to happen. This is uh, the sin that's going to be committed. These are the areas that that truth is going to touch. When anger takes over, if another man strikes uh, someone, or they get into a a quarrel, or there's conflict, some of you say, well, that's kind of relevant for my life. Did anybody ever get into conflict with anyone else ever? This is conflict resolution. Man, we're bad at conflict resolution. Right? Isn't that really what the news is? We stink at conflict resolution. So-and-so hit so-and-so, so-and-so killed so-and-so. This nation's going after that nation. Right? It's this animosity, this hostility and anger. And it's back and forth. It's constant. And so the Lord in His wisdom is setting forth justice and truth in how these people are going to live this out in everyday life. And we see something that is repeated constantly. Verse 19, he shall pay. Verse 22, he, or verse 20, he shall be avenged. Verse 22, right? He shall pay. Or I'm sorry, he shall surely be fined. Verse 22, he shall pay. Verse 23, you shall pay. He shall let the slave go free. Verse 27, because of his tooth. There's loss. You're paying. He shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. 30 shekels of silver, verse 32. There's payment. 
that is required when injury is caused. I think we can connect with that. That there's justice, when injustice occurs, justice needs to be served in such a way to restore, to make payment. And that's really what we begin to see in every situation when sin is being lived out in the context of the people of Israel, payment is required. Restitution needs to be made, as we see in verse 33 through the end of the book. I think one of the most famous things that we see is again repeated in Matthew chapter 5. This idea that life for life, tooth for tooth, right? Wound for wound. And so often we've seen that as some sort of uh, encouragement to get back at people. Right? If somebody pops you in the chin, you pop them back and call that biblical. Right? Just did what the Bible said, man. We're even. Right? We have this desire inside of us to, to be tit for tat or to be... Um, uh, Kind of bringing things back to order. If someone's wronged us, then we have the right to wrong them back. But the problem is this. We're not just seeking justice, are we? we we're punitive in relationships. I see it all the time as a parent. Annika accidentally scratches Silas. Silas, you know, goes headlock and, you know... Kind of body slam WWF. And South is like, there, we're even. And it's like, not really. There's something inside of us that when we're wrong, when we're injured, when someone offends us, when we're hurt, that we, we're actually punitive. We, we want to retaliate and really give it to them, don't we? I know it as a neighbor. I could tell you stories about the neighbors. Weeding their gardens and deciding to go Wilt Chamberlain over their fence into my yard. You know what I want to do? I want to get Joe's excavator and just start dumping dirt into their backyard. Right? Maybe throw my swing set over their fence. There's something inside of us that longs to retaliate and to, and to one-up. Because we think that they have done something so wrong, so bothersome, so offensive to us, that really, the only way for us to really be satisfied is for them to be in more pain than we are. Am I digging too deep within the human soul, or is that true? That's a true statement. And so what we see here is not, hey, go get people back. The Lord is restraining that response. Because our tendency is to be punitive. Our tendency is to want to hurt and harm beyond that which we have. And so what we're looking is the Lord is saying, as you relate to one another, as you're wrong, yes, restore justice, but please, let it be appropriate. It's meant to restrain our retaliatory nature to be punitive. And even Jesus 
goes even beyond that in Matthew 5, doesn't he? He says, you've heard it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say unto you, what? Someone slaps you on the cheek, turn it. The other one. He's basically getting at, don't retaliate at all. Those who know me and understand my love, understand what I am going to accomplish for them, the the perfect uh, justice that I will achieve for those who have been sinned against and victimized. Someone say amen to that. Those who know me and what I'm going to accomplish and how that's perfect justice are those that can turn the other cheek and say, Jesus took care of that. And they can be generous. You need my... You need my shirt, you can have my jacket too. You can have the whole thing. Whatever you want. I'm not going to retaliate. You take it. I'm going to be generous. But what we see is justice being lived out. Payment required and justice being served. Appropriate justice. Not exuberant. Not punitive. And so he's setting forth his truth in those matters of injury. And we see the last section is really setting forth truth in, in when it comes to property. And I think we can understand that, right? We don't have oxen, but we do have cars. You know, uh, Joe was talking yesterday about how he borrowed his buddy's car and he, he kind of messed it up. And you know what he did? Even though they were kind of jibbing and jabbing back and forth about, you never paid. Uh, yeah, I paid. He made restitution, right? So we have, in our relationships, times where we borrow somebody's uh, uh, pressure washer. How does Joe know I didn't put it on Craigslist? Maybe I did. Maybe I already sold it, right? But there's a way that we treat one another's property with respect, with dignity, with treating it as our own, right? Watching over it. It's really one anothering. And the point is this, the Lord is saying, if if anyone's stealing anything, make restitution, make payment. That's what we see taking place here. Just the establishment of truth and the establishment of justice in the day-to-day living. I think that's really all we see taking place here. I think we're going to continue to see it in specific situations. And the best way that I can figure it to really illustrate what's taking place here, because the Lord is setting forth His truth in a way that is shaping everyday life, is really the idea of a prism. Any of you science buffs out there? Right? That there's this white light called the nature of God that is shining into the ten words, the the ten commandments, And it is being refracted out in multifaceted color into the lives of everyday people. That's it. It's the truth of God. It's the nature of God that is being revealed in these Ten Commandments. And now what we're seeing, these rules that are set before us, these specific situations and interactions, is simply the the refracting of the nature of God into everyday existence. And that's what God wants for His people. And I think about our lives. You know, it's easy for us to to take a look at truth and to say, yeah, I believe that to be true on a sheet of paper. But it's another thing to say, yeah, that truth is so real, such a revelation of the nature of God that it is beginning to be integrated and applied into every situation of my life. Every decision I make, every piece of property that I own, is it governed by the Word of God? 
Is it governed by the nature of God? And I think many of us, as we read through this, and as we think about all the situations of our lives, all the aspects, we come to the realization that that's not the case fully, is it? That we see the overwhelming nature of the law, that yes, it reveals God, but it also reveals our sin. It also shows us who we are, not just who God is. You know, I think about this week we went to see uh, How Caverns with the kids. Anybody remember How Caverns? Yeah, we also went to um, um, Watkins Glen. And they got signs up in certain places. No access for people. That's like, come on in, right? For some of us, I wonder if there's areas of our lives where there's just simply no access for God. Is there unrepentant sin in your life? Or maybe even the totality of your life. You've never really opened up your heart. Never allowed the Spirit of God to come in and begin to work and to apply His redemption and His love and His infinite grace into the deepest parts of your identity and your person to transform your everyday life. I think that's what God is showing today. And you know, the law is indeed a prism, but it's not perfect and it's not full. We've already said that it simply is a foreshadowing of the real thing. And we know that the real thing, the real, true, perfect, full revelation of the nature of God is no one less than Jesus Christ Himself. And the beauty of Jesus is more likened to a diamond. As the nature of God shines through the multifaceted nature of the diamond, we see that as it is embraced and, and, and dependent upon, that, that it begins to transform not just our daily life, but our eternity before God. And I love this about Jesus. He knows. He knows that we did not fully keep the law. He knows that we were unfaithful. And so he makes payment. Right? We read those words, he shall pay. He must pay. In the beauty of the gospel message, which shines brighter than the law, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus pays. He makes payment for our sin. And it's sufficient. It satisfies the holiness and the righteousness of God. And all we need to do to receive its joys and to have that light shine into the depths of our hearts is say, yes, I recognize that I am sinful. I see your righteousness, O God, and I see my sin. And I just cry out for Jesus. Will you please save me? Will you make payment for me? in every aspect of my life? And will you begin to transform me into a person who joyfully represents, refracts the nature of God in every single aspect of my life? If that's you today, today is the day. In the midst of this crazy passage on slavery and oxes and holes in the ground, 
What we see is that God is revealing himself in such a way to transform your life. And he does so most personally, most powerfully in Jesus. He is that payment. He wants to make it for you. He is the diamond. Don't leave today without seeing him in all of his glory and beauty. Right? The Lord has set forth his eternal truth that he might transform our daily lives. That's what this is all about. Amen? Amen. If you need help in trying to figure out how to have a personal relationship with Jesus where your payment is made to God perfectly through Christ, see me. See anyone here. We'd love to walk you through that. We'd love to give you opportunities, uh, an opportunity this morning to, to know God personally. To know His forgiveness. And... Um, to begin a relationship with Him. This time in our service, the band's going to come forward. They're going to lead us in some closing songs. We're also going to take communion. We're going to celebrate that relationship that God has secured for us, but through His death and resurrection. The bread symbolizes His body. The cup, His blood. All those who believe and belong to Him, who, who depend upon His finished work as sufficient payment for sin, are welcome to come. If you in your heart today have made a decision to follow Jesus and embraced Him, you're welcome to come and celebrate the finished work of Christ. We're also going to sing.